After another of Saul's humiliating events, he offers what seems to be a sincere repentance, but David remains cautious. This is the 55th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 26. Samuel in chapter 26, the entire chapter, and then chapter 27, one verse, only the first verse. First Samuel chapter 26. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, well, David is in the wilderness of Ziph. David spares Saul once again. And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having three thousand chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul pitched in the hill, which is before Jeshimon, by the way. But David abode in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. David arose and came to the place where Saul had pitched. And David held the place where Saul lay and Abner the son of Ner, the captain of his hosts. And Saul lay in the trench and the people pitched round about him. Then answered David and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Uriah, brother to Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with thee. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster. But Abner and the people lay round about him. Then said Abishai to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore, let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear, even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. And David said to Abishai, Destroy him not. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, As the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. But I pray thee, take thou now the spear that is at his bolster, and the cruise of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster, and they got them away. And no man saw it, nor knew it neither awakened, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great space being between them. And David cried to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who art thou that criest to the king? And David said to Abner, Art not thou a valiant man, and who is like to thee in Israel? Wherefore then hast thou not kept thy lord the king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king thy lord. This thing is not good that thou hast done. As the Lord liveth, ye are worthy to die, because ye have not kept your master the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is, and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Wherefore doth my Lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in mine hand? Now therefore I pray thee, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord have stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, 
Cursed be they before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool, and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear, and let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord rendered to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord delivered thee into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David, thou shalt both do great things, and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines, and Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. The Apostle Matthew writing in Matthew chapter 3, the first ten verses. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes this, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers. Flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now Saul is humiliated by David for the second time. The first time Saul is humiliated by David after a piece of his royal robe was taken from him, signifying at that point that the kingdom had also been taken from him. But that was not the first time that Saul was humiliated. That was not the first time where an indication was given by the scripture that Saul's authority was removed from him. The first, if you remember, was when Saul failed to heed the counsel of Samuel by taking upon himself the role of the priest, making the sacrifice himself, which was explicitly told by Samuel to him not to do. It was the prophet's task to make the sacrifice. 
And we read that it was at that time when Saul finally decided to take upon himself a role that was not given to him, that he was not ordained to to maintain, that the scripture says, at that time God gave Saul another heart. Notice, not a new heart, but another heart. Note Samuel's instruction and the result in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of people's offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry, very explicit, seven days you wait for me till I come, and I will then show you what you shall do. And so, while Samuel tarried seven days, Saul took it upon himself a direct rebellion against the prophet's words, and he makes the sacrifice. And it was at that time that that God records the first declaration, or at least the insinuation, that the kingdom had been taken from Saul and given to David. And we read this in 1 Samuel 13, 13 and following. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord had sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Notice, it was Saul's, as his, as his kingly office dictated to him, it was Saul's obligation to keep the commandment of the prophet. But Saul continued to violate the clear commands of God once again by sparing Agag and keeping some of the spoils for himself, which he was told to utterly destroy. So here's the second time. He didn't learn his lesson the first time, so he does it again. Samuel had to complete the work that Saul failed to accomplish, which begins a series of three symbolic testimonies Three symbolic testimonials signifying that the kingdom had indeed been taken from Saul and given to David. And it is at this time that Samuel indicts Saul for not only rebellion, but notice what he says. He indicts him for witchcraft and idolatry as his rebellion and stubbornness dictated. Notice in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? This is what it's all about. He's saying to Saul, It's all about obedience, not sacrifice. Behold, he says, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Notice he's identifying rebellion as the sin of witchcraft, which will find he actually will be guilty of witchcraft. His rebellion was as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Another humiliation. Now hearing this in typical Saul fashion, he begs forgiveness. And Saul said unto Samuel in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty four, I have sinned. For I have transgressed, but this is only, notice, this is only after he's caught. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people. Notice, I did this because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Sounds a little bit like Aaron when he made the golden calf, making excuses. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin, 
and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with thee for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And then Samuel turns about to go away and he lays hold upon the skirt of his mantle and it rent. And Samuel said to him, The Lord had rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than you. Already he had ordained David. This was significant that the kingdom was going to David. Here is the first humiliation by Samuel against Saul. Now we're going to see another humiliation by David and then another humiliation by David. So by the tearing of Saul's garment, it was symbolizing a transference of power. So on and on and on, we see first here a transference of power away from Saul into the hands of Samuel who had already anointed David to be the future king. It was already set. The die was already set. So when Saul entered into the cave at that first time when he comes in to face to face with David to relieve himself, if you remember, David repeats this very event, this very significant event, signifying for the second time that there will be a transference of power. And he cuts the piece of Saul's robe. Now, in this chapter, chapter 26, in the land of the betraying Ziphites, those spying Saul lovers, David once again humiliates the king. But this time it's a little bit more severe. Not so much symbolic, but very severe. Taking Saul's spear and his water while he was in deep sleep, a transference of power is once again for the third and final time set forth so that by two or three witnesses the word of God that the kingdom is taken from Saul is now established. Instead of crushing Saul's head, which he could have, because the spear was by his head, he could have continued the theme of the head crushing. He did not. So instead of crushing Saul's head, David shows Saul mercy, but not without leveling a sharp rebuke against Saul and his war chief Abner. This act was only brought about by the sheer mercy of God. The only reason why David could spare Saul's life was because God's mercy was upon him. God was dealing with David. David was given a merciful heart to give Saul this merciful intervention because he would be the shepherd king. David was only able to show such restraint because of the mercy of God. Refusing to act in vengeance against Saul, David chooses rather to rebuke Abner while at the same time defending himself against the king's wrath. And so we learned last time that there are times, even when there is great evil set against us, that mercy can be shown, leaving it to the Lord to destroy the wicked. Solomon counsels us in Proverbs 15.1, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. So David is going to rebuke because now is the time for rebuking even after Saul would not, would not listen to reason but kept on seeking to assassinate the future king. Even though David was going to rebuke Saul in such a public way, and that is important that it was a public rebuke, it is also a very sharp rebuke. He's not letting Saul get away with anything. Now, while David might have hoped for true repentance, he might have hoped against all hope, knowing the nature of Saul. It was a hope against all hope, and yet he would have he would have been he would have had to have been convinced 
beyond any shadow of a doubt that Saul's sorrowing and his repentance was real. But he knew, knowing Saul, this was unlikely. And that is why he remains very cautious. Let's consider for a moment Saul's response to David's merciful rebuke. Verse 21, Then Saul said, I have sinned. He was caught. And therefore he confesses, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more, notice his oath, for I will no more do thee harm because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. And I'm not going to do you harm only because you didn't do me harm. Not because I'm guilty of assassinations attempt. Because you showed mercy to me, I will just show mercy to you. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Quite a testimony. David understood that repentance, even though this seemed as if he's confessing that he sinned, he understood that repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. Words of remorse mean nothing unless they are certified by actions. It seems that this was a favorite phrase that Saul used before in order to reinstate himself into a position which was more favorable to his ego Self-justification was Saul's motivation. But self-justification can never be attached to true repentance. You cannot be repentant and then justify yourself in the same breath. In 1 Samuel 15.24, Saul uses the same idea of self-justification method in order to convince Samuel that he was innocent of disobeying Samuel's commandment, even though that is exactly what he did. Remember here in verse 24 of 1 Samuel 15, And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, same thing he's saying to David, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. This is the same thing he said to David. And thy words, because, there's always a because, I did it because. Yes, I sinned, but because. There was a reason behind my transgression, because I feared the people. And therefore, I obeyed their voice in contradiction to what God had commanded me. He always had an excuse. You see, Samuel, there's a very good reason for my rebellion. Lord, There's a very good reason for my sin. I was tired. I was lonely. I was angry. I didn't didn't get a good night's sleep. The baby was up all night. There's a very good reason why I'm out of my mind in sin. This may be the same reasoning that Saul is using with David. Here, implying that Saul might have been hunting David as a result of of pressure from his troops. Maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe uh, I was convinced by my people. That was a lie. It was Saul. Everything about Saul that made him want to kill David. It was Saul's own intentions which were to blame for his wickedness. It wasn't the people. It wasn't, it wasn't anything but Saul. In fact, Saul's murderous intention along with his self-justification was a product of his reprobation. In other words, his actions were according to his nature. He couldn't excuse it away. He uses the same line of reasoning again while trying to excuse himself from his rebellion against Samuel, but this time he actually reveals why he wants to be reinstated into Samuel's good graces. Notice verse 30 of 1 Samuel 15. And this is very telling. Then he said, I have sinned. Notice how he's convinced and he's confessing. 
Yes, I transgressed God's law. I have sinned. Now that's what that means. Yet, notice verse 30, yet honor me now anyway. I pray thee before the elders of my people and before Israel and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. So what is he saying here? He's saying, honor me now even though I have sinned because I don't want any public consequences for my action. Honor me now before the elders of my people and before all Israel. Don't tell anybody that I've had this transference of power taken from me. Saul admits that he wishes to be reinstated in order to save face before the people and the elders. His confession, therefore, was insincere, manipulative, and self-serving. Honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and all of Israel. I don't want to look bad as the king before all the people. These were empty words. These empty words of repentance were also on the lips of Pharaoh during the Egyptian tyranny. Notice, Exodus 10, 16. This is Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, what do you think he said? I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord, Yahweh Elohim. I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Not long before this confession by Pharaoh, which is amazing in and of itself, he adds that he and his people are wicked and the Lord is righteous in Exodus 9.27. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and I and my people are wicked. Incredible testimony. You would think, wow, he finally gets it. He finally gets it. He realizes he sinned. He realizes his people are wicked. And yet, what does he do? He musters an army and he goes to kill them all. This addition is exactly what Saul implied when he spoke to David in 1 Samuel 24 after David cut off the hem of Saul's royal robe. When we consider the testimony of Achan as well and wicked Balaam, even Balaam as well, they too confessed that they had sinned and yet both were unrepentant. Notice Numbers 22:34. And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. And Joshua 7:20. Achan, and you know Achan and his entire family were destroyed. And yet Achan answers Joshua and says, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. But they were not repentant. They just confessed the obvious. Each of these confessions were without real conviction and they were without real sincerity. Now Saul states a number of truths. He definitely sinned, number one. Now, while this is true, in fact, undeniable, he failed to delineate exactly what was the sin. What sins did he commit? He just said, I sinned. And this is important, a very important aspect of repentance. You've got to see all of your sins particularly. True repentance does not generalize sin. It identifies sin specifically. It sets forth exactly which laws that sin had violated and what the ramifications are to that violation. What does that violation mean? What does that law mean? What are the consequences for that sin? Listing the sins by saying, I sinned. So what? Okay, we're all sinners. In a court of law, the crimes committed 
are not lumped into a general statement. Each crime is identified. When you go before a judge, he's going to say, you've been guilty of A, B, C, D, E, and F. He's just not going to say you've been guilty of committing crimes. It doesn't mean anything. It's just like if I say to you, I'd really like to have you for dinner over to my house. That means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. But if I say to you, on Friday at 6 p.m., on such and such a date, would you please join me for dinner at my home? Now we've got specificity. Saul should have identified his crimes openly, publicly, especially since his entire, his entire life was about sinning. And this entire scene took on the form of an open courtroom hearing. But he didn't want to bring out the fact that he's a murderous, lying, deceitful, rebellious, sinful man. David was holding court. That's why he brought Saul and Abner to the fore. He brings them to the forefront. And he opens this courtroom hearing. He was holding court. Saul was about to be tried. His crimes had to be heard publicly. If his repentance was real, all of his crimes would have been confessed. If he was sincere, he would have spelled out each of his transgressions in open court. He should have said that he had sinned as a murderer, a conspirator, a hater of God's anointed, a violator of his oath, his violation of his office as king, the sin of pride, arrogance, narcissism, and you can just keep going and going and going for him. In addition to these, he should have confessed that he had just used his son and daughter to conspire against David. He even lobbied to kill his own son, Jonathan, if you remember. He lied about David's treason and setting forth legal ordinances that were in direct rebellion to the law of God. And yet he confessed none of these things. His sins were legion. His sight of sin was imprecise and glossed over with generalities. Moreover, he not only sinned in these ways, but many of his sins were also crimes. To say that you have sinned, therefore, is not enough. The sin must be spelled out. Whether you go before God with it, or you go before a brother or a sister, and say, listen, here it is. Only then can you realize the depth of your transgression when you spell out your sin. And only then can you deal with it to mortify it. If you say, I've sinned, okay, okay, well, how are you going to deal with that? How do you deal with that? But if you say, I'm an angry man, I need to deal with my anger. Oh, now we've got something. Now we've got something. we got to sink our teeth into that one. Now we, can, now we can start to fix that. This is the way of repentance. But to say that you have sinned is just not enough. It must be spelled out. Only then can there be true repentance. But Saul, unfortunately, as many others, he wasn't interested in true repentance. He was interested in saving face. Secondly, he then tells David to return, promising not to do him harm. Promising not to do him harm. He was giving David a promise? A murderous man promising not to do someone harm? without any real confirmation of Saul's repentance, other than mere words that he had sinned, he then tells David, the nerve of the man, to return to his house. And this is a very interesting request. In Saul's ignorance of what repentance really is, he requests an immediate reinstatement of his relationship between he and David. I've sinned, let's get it together. 
Okay, I've sinned. Okay, come on, let's go. Let's have it. Let's make it like nothing happened. There are no consequences to my assassinations. There are no consequences for my rebellion. Let's just forget about it. Let's just reinstate everything the way it was. It can never be the way it was. Unless they're true repentance, then, in time. But we see no testimony where Saul asks for forgiveness. He doesn't say, forgive me, David. He says, I have sinned. Come over to my house and let's kumbaya together. Never ask for forgiveness. He doesn't ask what he might do to convince David of his sincerity. He simply wants David to take him at his word. But that is not real repentance. We see no detailed confession, no real shame, no prayer before God to forgive, no evidence of self-hatred, only a request to get back to normal without any consequences. He still wants to be king. If Saul was truly repentant, he would have publicly removed himself from office of king that very minute, then and there at that place, and place himself at the mercy of the judges. After all, he was a criminal. After all, he did kill the priests of God. Thirdly, Saul then gives a reason why David should return. Because my soul, notice, the navel-gazing narcissist that he was, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Saul says that it was David's mercy that moved Saul to recognize his sin. It was not God's intervention, but rather David's actions of mercy that brought Saul to confess. He was found out. Fourthly, he then admits that he had been a fool and his error was great. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. I erred exceedingly? I made a big mistake, is what he said. You made a big mistake? You tried to kill your son by crafting a law. You conspired against me. You sought to take my life. You killed the priests. Nob, you, you are a criminal and an assassin, a murderer and a liar. You made a mistake? A big one? Now before we continue to look at the historical account and practical lessons contained herein, let's just pause for a minute and ask, are there any spiritual lessons? Well, remember Saul does represent Adam, David represents Christ. These men are given to us as types and figures to flesh out certain aspects of the gospel and the kingdom of God. And so we have to ask a few questions. What moves an individual with the Adamic nature to confess their sin and acknowledge that they have played the fool? If it's really a confession, what is it that moves a man to confess? And the answer is God's mercy. David's act of mercy upon wicked Saul is a picture of Christ's mercy bestowed upon the elect who are lost in the loins of Adam. Instead of killing us, Christ shows us mercy. We thought we were kings. We thought that we made a mistake. We thought, yeah, we sinned, but everything's cool and I'm a good guy and I'm not like that bad guy over there or that axe murderer over there. I'm pretty good, but it was the mercy of God that brought us to our knees. It was the mercy of God that brought us to the realization that we are sinners. Once redeemed, we confess our specific transgressions, which are legion, myriad. And then we ask Christ as we go through the catalog of of wretchedness, and as we go through the catalog of wretchedness that who we were, we begin to become sickened by what we were and who we were, and what we thought, 
and what direction we were headed. And then we ask Christ to return to us, promising never again to be at odds with Him and never seeking to do harm to His name or His people. Now when we look at the historical lessons, however, Saul doesn't represent the elect, but rather the hypocrites, I think, within the church that feign a confession without real repentance, desiring that Christ return to them without really owning their sin and seeking forgiveness. As long as I'm going to church, I'm good to go. As long as I confess my sin here or there, here or there, maybe one here, one there, or generally, I remember when, when the, in the Catholic church, as kids, we used to have to go to confession and we used to make up stuff. Yeah, I, I lied three times, or I lied ten times, or I, 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 I thought bad thoughts three times. It, it was crazy, because it wasn't real. But once God deals with us, He brings to mind the depth of who we were. And we begin to truly sorrow over our sins. Then we own them, every single one of them. And you know what that does? Let me tell you what that does. It keeps us from pride. It keeps us from thinking that because we know a thing, we are a thing. We need to be humbled daily because of the old Adam that's in us. Now note how David how David really doesn't answer Saul. He just goes on this tirade of reproof. He reproves him in a courtroom setting almost before a jury of his peers. The nation of Israel now is standing by, listening. And David begins by reminding Saul and his entire army that he has now been given by by what he took, the king's scepter, the king's spear. And David answered and said, notice, he's not answering him directly. He's saying, behold the king's spear. And this was a tremendous revelation since the spear represented the scepter of the king, his war instrument. It was his ruling instrument. It was his weapon of war. To confiscate Saul's spear while he was sleeping in a trench, signifying hell itself, was to confiscate his authority. To confiscate his spear was to confiscate his authority. David holds up the spear as if to say, Now I have been given royal authority. He is no longer king. And this must have terrorized Saul, since he knew that the kingdom was finally taken from him and given to David. Saul now had to face the fact that his time as king was pretty much finished. So David then asks for a young man. Not Saul, not Abner. He asks for a young man to come and retrieve the spear. And you have to ask, well, why? Why not humiliate Saul? Why not say, okay, Saul, you come on up. Come on up. You get your own spear. You achieve your own spear. Well, David didn't want Saul or any of Saul's men to come up, especially Abner, because they might come and kill David. So he asks for a young boy to retrieve the spear. And this is very telling because David still doesn't trust Saul. Still doesn't trust him. All of Saul's words were empty. And David goes into his sermon rebuke. Notice what he says, verses 23 and 4. The Lord render to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. In other words, you're not righteous, you're not faithful, and you're going to be rendered the Lord's wrath. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. He's looking to the Lord. In this series of verses, David is actually telling Saul, 
that God will render to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness, as if to say, Saul is neither. David is also contrasting Saul with himself, as if to say, you are void of any righteousness, you are void of any fidelity, but I, on the other hand, because now I have the king's spear, now I am the rightful heir, I am righteous, I am faithful. Note how David uses God's covenant also, his covenant name, addressing God as Yahweh, as if to point out that Saul has broken God's covenant from the very beginning. He broke the covenant as an individual, but even more egregious, he broke his covenant as king. This should be a wake-up call to everyone that has been providentially placed in a position of rulership whether it's a father, a governess of the house, a mother, someone in the ecclesiastical office, or a government official. I would even go as far as to say even an elected dog catcher. Everyone who is called providentially to a position of rule are responsible to God's covenant. Every one of them. And that's what many rulers, too many rulers, don't understand that they are held accountable. There's an accountability attached to everyone holding any kind of an office. David adds that it was God's active orchestration against Saul that placed Saul into the hand of David. Notice, for the Lord delivered thee into my hand today. And, of course, you've violated your oath of office. And David then again contrasts himself with Saul. While Saul hunted David to kill him, David shows mercy. Saul the murderer, David the merciful. It was David's restraint coupled with his mercy that proved that David was a man of integrity, he was a man of honor, he was a man of of sincerity before God, knowing that he wouldn't kill the anointed of the Lord, and he was a man of strength. He was able to he was able to stop himself from doing what naturally he might have wanted to do. He tells Saul then that like Saul who did not view David's life as precious, David views Saul's life as precious. In the same way that David hoped the Lord would view his life as precious and that he would protect him from all evil. Now consider Saul's response in verse 25. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou my son David, for thou shalt be both great uh, and will prevail. Thou shalt both do great things and shall also prevail. Now notice what he's saying. He's continuing to call David his son finally recognizing that God is with David and not only taking the kingdom from him, but as king, David will do great things, prevailing over all of his enemies. And that was something Saul couldn't do. Adam Clark says this, There is a vast deal of dignity in this speech of David, arising from a consciousness of his own innocence. He neither begs his life from Saul nor offers one argument to prevail upon him to to desist from his felonious attempts, but refers the whole matter to God as the judge and vindicator of oppressed innocence. Saul himself is speechless, except in the simple acknowledgement of his sin. And in the behalf of their king, not one of his officers has one word to say. It is strange that none of them offered now to endure the person of David, but they saw that he was most evidently under the guardian care of God and that their master was apparently abandoned by him. Saul is finally abandoned by God. So why could Saul achieve greatness? What was the one problem that he could not get over? And it was pride. His pride brought about his destruction and his haughty spirit 
brought about his fall. Saul was unwilling to humble himself before God and this led him to become a law unto himself and once he became a law unto himself, he got his power as king. He thought that he could determine good and evil according to his own sinful nature in the same way that Adam thought that by eating of the tree that he too could become his God discerning for himself between good and evil. This is what happens in government all the time. They think themselves beyond right and wrong, above God and of course then they begin to make laws according to their own nature. So David goes on his way and Saul returns to his place. That too, at the end of the day, when the two men separate themselves from each other, never to see each other again in this life, it tells us something that David did not take Saul's invitation to return to his court as his son. Verse 1 of the next chapter gives us further insight into the mind of David. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. Think about that. After all of this bellyaching at Saul's, I'm sinned, come back, I'm foolish, I'm stupid, you're right, I'm wrong. David says, I know that man. With all Saul's bellyaching that he was foolish and they had sinned, David knew it's all a show. He still believed that Saul was going to revert back to his old self because that was who he was. And that meant Saul would begin to hunt him once again and kill him. And this tells us something about those who have no evidence of true repentance. They're not to be trusted. They're just not to be trusted. This also tells us something about David. God had protected David thus far from the murderous intentions of Saul. Why then would he fear that Saul might kill him? If he was so convinced that God would save him and keep him from falling under Saul's tyranny... Why did he leave and go to the land of the Philistines? Was he lacking faith? Was he still afraid of Saul? I don't think he was lacking faith at all. David knew that he should not tempt God by putting himself in harm's way. He knew that if he went back, he would be killed. He knew Saul's intentions. But he also knew that God would protect him as long as he remained cunning. So we need to remain cunning in the face of unrepentant sinners, wicked men, wicked nations. We never are to let down our guard. David did not let down his guard, no matter what the man said, because he knew the man's nature. And he didn't want to tempt God. Because he understood that God protects us through means, not through carelessness. Now consider David's plan. He hides out in the most unlikely place of all, in the camp of the Philistines, in hope that Saul would not venture into their land. For if he did, there would be a war. There would be a war and Saul was ill-prepared for conflict because God had left him. So notice what he says. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land, making no hesitation because I know Saul, after he gains his wits, he's coming after me again. That I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines and Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel, so shall I escape out of his hand. And so David escapes into the land of Achish and the Philistines for shelter against Saul. We shall examine that next when we return to David in the land of the Philistines. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.